Let's read God's Word now from John 18. John 18, we'll begin reading at 28 through 38. John 18, we'll begin reading at verse 28 through verse 38. This is God's holy and infallible Word. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow low in your presence. Write this, your word, we pray, upon our hearts that we might not sin against you, that we might ever bow to him who is our king now and forever, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Fort Sumter had been fired upon and taken. The momentous U.S. Civil War had commenced in April 1861. Less than a month later, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, the still united old school church, met in Philadelphia under great public pressure to issue a pro-union statement. Some there, including Charles Hodge of Princeton, were concerned that the body would be overrun with political matters and appreciated that the moderator of the previous assembly, John William Yalmans, opened this assembly in the time of a divided nation with this text, John 1836, my kingdom is not of this world. Only John records these details 
of Pilate's interview with our Lord. The synoptists, you can think of Luke 23, make it clear that Pilate inquired of Jesus as to his kingship because the Sanhedrin brought charges, albeit false ones, against Jesus of three basic things, perverting the Jewish nation, secondly, forbidding the Jews to pay taxes levied by Caesar, and thirdly, proclaiming himself as king of the Jewish nation. These were the charges brought against our Lord, and the latter was obviously being king of the Jewish nation, obviously brought to imply sedition, and that Jesus saw himself, this was what they were trying to charge, as a rival to Caesar, if not to Pilate as well. This is the one that Pilate takes up, this last charge, that he's a rival to Caesar. He also gets counsel from some others. He seeks it from Herod. He gets it involuntarily from his own wife as to Jesus' innocence. And ultimately, he dismisses this charge, not finding Jesus to be making political and military claims that would amount to treason. You see it at the end of 38. He says, I find no guilt in him. And that's what he's referring to. Well, it's quite clear, though, that Jesus Christ does indeed reign as king. And here's our theme. Christ does reign as king, a heavenly king over a heavenly kingdom. And we see that teased out as we focus on these two things. First of all, the nature of Christ's kingship, and secondly, the nature of Christ's kingdom. The nature of Christ's kingship and the nature of Christ's kingdom. We begin by thinking of the nature of Christ's kingship, and we may say, first of all, though this kingship was obscured in his humiliation, it's still observed even in that state of humiliation. Our Lord Jesus Christ entered in that, into that a state of humiliation, as we speak of it, at His conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That very much is what will be upon our plates as we enter Advent and Christmas. Christ coming and coming as one humbled. It was humbling simply for Him to be incarnate right? To add humanity to his deity. Further, it was humbling to be born, not in glory and splendor, not as befitted him, but in a low condition. Not only under the law, but mired in want. Foxes have holes, he said, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Even in this low estate of what Warfield called a perpetual Gethsemane. He said that was his life in this state of humiliation. Even in that state, he performed miracles and did other things that bespoke his deity and his kingship. He ruled the wind and the waves. He healed, even raising the dead. He commanded and cast out demons. Both Athanasius 
the great church father, and Leo, the great of the next century, attest to these wondrous truths. Athanasius says, at one and the same time, this is the wonder, as man, he, Jesus, was living a human life, and as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. Leo put it this way, the proper character of both natures was maintained and came together in a single person. Lowliness was taken up by majesty, weakness by strength, mortality by eternity. To pay off the debt of our state, invulnerable nature was united to a nature that could suffer, so that in a way that corresponded to the remedies we needed, one and the same mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, could both on the one hand die and on the other be incapable of death. This was true God, born in the undiminished and perfect nature of a true man, complete in what is His and complete in what is ours as men and women. It's also true that this kingship was obscured in some ways, we can say, especially in his passion as he headed for the cross. He hardly appears to the watching world under arrest and trial to be a king, especially here before Pilate. Here he stands to be judged by this mere man, albeit a civil ruler. Note here, though, even in this circumstance, he turns the tables Verse 34, in his questioning of Pilate, you can imagine Pilate thinks, wait a minute, who's interviewing who, right? Christ begins asking him questions. And his implicit invitation to him of verse 37, of being one who might hear his voice, this is beautifully set forth and reminds us of what C.S. Lewis said, that God is never before us in the dock to be judged by us. We're never properly on the bench and God stands as prisoner. No, we always stand before God to be judged by Him. So even in this circumstance, Pilate's not really in control, right? But we see here Jesus places Himself here freely. He could have called 12 legions of angels when they came to arrest Him. We're told that, right? He doesn't have to be here. He's here because He loves you and me. And to Pilate's amazement, that's seen clearly in the synoptics as well, not as much here, to Pilate's amazement, he makes no defense of himself. Contrary, I think, to Pilate's expectation, verse 37, Pilate says, So you are a king probably expecting denial or evasion on Jesus' part. In other words, he's been charged by the Jews with these three things, being a king, being the last. And Pilate probably expects him to somehow try to get out of that. But no, he doesn't. He's in fact not trying to get out of anything. You might recall just back when he was in the garden and Peter cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus said in reproach to Peter, shall I not drink this cup that my father has given me? 
Jesus isn't trying to get out of anything here. So you might wonder with Pilate a little bit, why doesn't Jesus defend himself against these manifestly false charges? He said, give to Caesars that which is Caesars. I mean, one of the charges, that's an easy one to refute. One of the charges was he was saying, don't pay taxes to the Romans. And he clearly didn't say that. This is a lie. I want you to feel the weight of this. Why doesn't you, is it wrong to make a defense of yourself throughout much of the Bible? I mean, Paul makes a defense of himself. It's not wrong to defend yourself against false charges. So you need to understand why Jesus doesn't. Doesn't he care about his reputation? Doesn't he care about the truth? Oh, he says he, he's here to be a witness of the truth. Don't miss this, friends. Jesus makes no defense when he is before Pontius Pilate because he is not standing there in his own proper person. He's not actually representing himself. He's representing you and me. He is being constituted as judicially guilty on our behalf as the hymn writer said in my place condemned he stood so in my place and in your place condemned he stood and he made no defense because we have no defense he was representing us and he makes no defense because we're guilty 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 and he took that upon himself and paid the full price in his own body on the tree. Well, what's the nature of his kingship, we say? It's a spiritual kingship, verse 36. Jesus' answer here to Pilate baffles Pilate. Not because Jesus is seeking to confuse him. I think a lot of times when we read this, we read it badly. As if Jesus is playing games with Pilate. He's not. Do you understand that if he had simply said, this is a leading question, right? He's a hostile witness. Pilate is leading the witness, right? He says, are you a king? Well, if he simply says yes, Pilate has no way of understanding what that means. To Pilate, a king is like Caesar, any other earthly king. He doesn't know what a heavenly king is. He has no clue. He still does it when the interview's over. He has no idea. If he says no, he would be lying. He can't really just say yes and let it go at that. That would mislead him. Nor can he simply say no. He's not playing games with Pilate. He's actually trying to speak to Pilate who doesn't have the categories whereby to understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus says that he's a king who has come into the world for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. Now Pilate sees himself as trying to get at the truth. Certainly at the beginning. What do you think he's doing here? He's heard the charges of the Jews and he's having to face. He's obvious that the Jews want to put him to death. Because when he says, judge him for yourselves, right? When Pilate says to them, well, take him and judge him according to your own law. What are you bothering me for? And they say, well, we can't execute the death penalty. And Pilate is, okay, well, he, he knows exactly what's going on now. I mean, okay, you want his charge of being king of the Jews to be understood as sedition, as treason, as calling into question everybody's loyalty to Caesar. Maybe their loyalty to me as Caesar's representative. 
I get what you're saying, so I have to do an investigation here. And he commences to do this investigation. He also, though, the whole time, he's clearly dubious about... You, you see the exchange in those earlier verses with the Jewish leaders. There's not any affection lost between them. You understand that. He's dubious about the Jewish leaders' claims. If you look at Mark 15, 10, in fact, it says that he recognized that the Jewish leaders delivered Jesus to, to him for envy. It says that Pontius Pilate, not a, not a terribly sensitive spiritual fellow, shall we say, recognizes that it, it's not in this text. It doesn't have to be in this text. We have four Gospels. And it says that he delivered him for envy. So Pilate is suspicious of these folks. And in verse 35, here he conducts the interview, the investigation. What have you done? Reasonable enough question. Verse 37, when he says he is a king in some fashion, so you are a king. Finally concluding that whatever sort of king he is, he's without guilt. Verse 38. So Pilate sees himself as trying to get at the truth, but really Pilate can't handle the truth, as some have said. He really can't handle the truth because Jesus blows all his categories with his answers. Notice here, John has told us before in his gospel that his sheep, the sheep of the Lord Jesus, hear his voice. And Pilate doesn't hear his voice here. Notice how Jesus puts it rather plaintively. Everyone who is of the truth, verse end of 38, listens to my voice. And many, I think, rightly take that as a kind of an invitation Jesus is giving then and there to Pilate, saying, will you not believe? And Pilate turns away turns away, as Don Carson says, showing that he is not of his sheep. Jesus is clearly king of a different sort. As we've seen, he rules the winds and the waves, even in humiliation. Now, an earthly king doesn't do that in his greatest glory. An earthly king doesn't raise the dead. An earthly king doesn't cast out demons. So even in humiliation, obscured as his kingship was, veiled in flesh, that's what that means when you sing it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Even though that's true, he still manifested that which an earthly king in all his glory never manifest. He's a king whose origin lies elsewhere. That's the nature of his kingship. Now it is the case that had the kingship still existed in Israel, right, he would have been the one who would be king. We see that from the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. No, it's not an earthly kingship, though. It's a heavenly one that impacts all this world, though not of this world. But it's not a kingship of swords loud clashing, as we're going to sing in a moment, or roll of stirring drums. It's not a kingship where my servants, as he says here, if I were a king, Pilate, in the way you understand kings ordinarily, my servants would be fighting. But they're not. And in fact, when the servant of the chief priest, and you certainly should appreciate this here, tries to turn Malchus, the chief priest's servant, into Van Gogh by doing the ear off thing, right? 
just picks that. Can you imagine Malchus the rest of his life? You can imagine him going. Whatever he came to believe ultimately about Jesus. Wow. He's put my ear back on. Pretty remarkable. He's the Lord from above who does not rule in contrast to many earthly authorities. He doesn't rule. He's got his own way of ruling. It's not like other rulers. It's not like parents who have the rod. It's not like civil rulers like Pilate or Caesar who have the sword and life and death authority. Yes, he's the ruler of all the spheres, but that's not so much what's in view here. What's in view here, he is a spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom. He rules particularly and in a special way in the midst of his church, especially with the exercise of the keys and through the means of grace, as we're doing here in the proclamation of the word, as we do at the table and the administration of the sacraments, as we come to him in prayer. He rules through his appointed office bearers, particularly his ministers and elders. There is one heavenly king who is the ruler of all earthly kings, especially for and of his church. Well, we've been thinking about the nature of Christ's kingship. Let's think now about the nature of Christ's kingdom. What is the kingdom like that has as its head this heavenly king? It's a kingdom, verse 36 says, as Gordon Ketty says, that is not of this world, that is not from this world, and that is not up against this world. But as we say, it is in this world. It's a kingdom that's in this world. First of all, as Luke 17, 21 proclaims, this kingdom is not observed by sight, as someone would say, look, here it is, right? No, it's not observed by sight, but it's a spiritual kingdom that is within you, Luke says, or that is in the midst of you. Think of it this way. It's not a kingdom that is a realm as many have said, but a kingdom that is a reign. The kingdom which has come and is to come as we pray. We pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're praying that this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, would more and more come and fill the earth. This kingdom is in the midst of you in the person of Jesus and in the reign of God demonstrated in the lives of his followers. God's people in that sense, all of those here who trust Jesus Christ, who bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who kiss the Son, as you heard earlier, all of those carry that kingdom with you wherever you go. They, you, as Augustine said, are the city of God. You're the city of God. You carry this kingdom with you. So you're the city of God. You're part of the city of God when you're in the marketplace, when you're in the courtroom, when you're in the hospital, when you're in the classroom, when you're in the office, the factory floor, and so forth. So at work, at play, as well as at worship, we are in spiritual communion with Christ and each other. That's what's signified and sealed at this table. The reality of the spiritual communion that we have with Father, Son, and Spirit, with Christ as the focal point, and with each other as members of His mystical body. 
living in this world according to the strictures of our king, not from this world, not merely another king over, earth, over other earthly kingdoms, but ruling in our hearts and lives of all who bow to the truth. Don't miss that. That's very significant in what Jesus said to Pilate. That he's a king who comes to bear witness to the truth. What is truth? Dismissory Pilate said with apologies to Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon says, jesting Pilate. Says, I don't think Pilate is jesting here. I think Pilate is something closer to desperate. Or sort of at his wit's end. (laughs) I don't think he's having a good time. I don't think this is a good day for Pilate. Well, you know the situation with his wife, you're right. I've had dreams. I mean, have nothing to do with that just man. (laughs) Truth. I'm answering that question Pilate asked. What is truth? Truth is that Christ provides the sole remedy for our condition, a part of which is a true transformation at our spiritual core that impacts all that we say and think and do. The truth is Christ Himself. Truth is not merely a proposition. It is propositional. Truth is not merely personal. It is a person. The modernists say truth is propositional, not personal. The postmodernists say truth is personal, not proposition. It's both properly understood because the person of Christ is the truth. And this is about having a relationship with His person who embodies the truth. This kingdom is not exhausted... We say this kingdom is not exhausted by, but manifested especially in the visible institutional church. Christ is head of all for His church. All things are working to our good and His glory. Thanks be to God, these are one and the same. The church, some have said, is the alpha form of this spiritual kingdom. Contrasted as a spiritual kingdom as we thought a moment about earlier, with the biological institution of the family and the civil institution of the state. The power of the church is a spiritual power. It's the power of the keys. So Christ is a spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom. This is about true spirituality, which means life in the Holy Spirit. The power of the church is a spiritual power. It's ministerial and declarative. It's not, as the Roman church would have it, magisterial and legislative. No, it's held in a servant mode. It's ministerial. It's a serving mode. It's teaching the Word of God, declaring God's Word. Nor is it legal and coercive, as is the power of the state. Rather, the power of the church is moral and suasive. Here you have a proper doctrine of what was called and has been called the spiritual independency or the spirituality of the church. It means that the church is a spiritual entity not indifferent to its times or the needs of others. And I'm speaking especially of the institutional church. Not so much the church as organism. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said when you're in the marketplace and when you're out there doing your jobs, that's the church 
as organism, we might say, but the church as institute or, or organization. The church is a spiritual entity, as we say, not indifferent to its times or the need of others, but absorbed in them for their spiritual good. Warfield, again, is beautiful on this in his wonderful sermon, Imitating the Incarnation. This is not the gospel can't be reduced to some mere social gospel. Rather, the institutional church, the gospel is given to it, and that church is to keep it pure and to proclaim it for all. J. Gresham Machen struggled with this very much in his day as he battled liberalism. It's almost a century. In a couple of years, it will be a hundred years since Machen wrote his grand book, Christianity and Liberalism. And the reason he called it and liberalism, and by the way, he's not talking about anything political there. He's not talking about liberal conservative. That has nothing to do with what he's talking about as such. He's talking about liberal uh, theology and theology that is Bible and God denying. Modernism is another way to put it. And he very much saw the church of his day, the church particularly of the teens and the 20s, as giving way to a social gospel, the Presbyterian church, very much giving way to a kind of social gospel and just letting political concerns swamp it. And this is what he said at one point in Christianity and Liberalism. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour are easy solutions to the vast problems of sin. And he says, is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing? where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. This is what the world needs. This is what the world needs the church to be. It needs it to be the church. And to proclaim this message of our King and of His kingdom. Rightly understood, this approach that Machen sets forth here allows the church both to distinguish itself from the world and to give itself to the world. This is our calling. We're to distinguish ourselves from the world. We're a particular institution, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. No other institution is given the gospel. It's not given to the state to proclaim throughout the world. It's not given to the family to proclaim throughout the world. It's given to the church. And we must do that. We must both distinguish ourselves from the world and give ourselves to the world. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the church does the world the least good when it seeks to be most like it. The church does the world the least good 
when it seeks to be most like the world. So did Israel when it wanted to ape the nations. I mean, think about what Israel had. And they're saying, why can't we have a king like the other nations have kings? You want to say, are you nuts? How is that even working for them? They're just given over to every kind of wickedness. Really? You know, it's in its own different way. It's sort of like Americans who say, well, why can't we be more like Europe? Seriously? Look at it. We have that to offer the world. The church has that to offer the world that only we can. The truth about God, man, and the only remedy to man's sin and his heading to hell. Man is heading to hell outside of God in Christ. We have this message to bring. The God-man, the one who lived and died for us, is the heavenly king of a heavenly kingdom. This is what we offer to a needy dying world. Not a mere political, economic, or social program, but a whole new life in Him who has conquered death, hell, and the grave, who ever lives to intercede for us, who reigns, who rules in hearts and lives, and who will come again to take us to live forever in a kingdom that has no end. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we barely touch the hem of the garment in these things, and we pray you would be pleased to take them home to our needy hearts. Instruct us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing.